Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, we've done a bunch of episodes on the Mafia, touching on subjects like the Black Hand, Arnold Rothstein, Lucky Luciano, Mickey Cohen, Frank the Irishman Sheeran, but we've rarely mentioned one very important figure in its history, Frank Costello, who played a vital role in the growth of the mob in the 20th century. But I'm about to remedy this oversight. I'm grateful to have as my guest today Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Anthony DiStefano. His book, Top Hoodlum, Frank Costello, Prime Minister of the Mafia, is our subject today. I appreciate you so much for coming on to talk about this. I'm happy to do it. You've had a pretty amazing career covering organized crime as a reporter. Would you mind telling us about your personal experience reporting on the Mafia over the years? Well, yeah, it started in the late 70s covering the um, uh, the Mafia in the Garment District in New York City, where it's usually been traditionally pretty entrenched, and we broke a groundbreaking series of stories back then uh, in what was, I guess, the sort of beginning of the end of uh, the organized crime power in the city, but still, they were still powerful nonetheless. And we did a series of about 10 stories, which sort of set the standard for reporting at that time. And from there, you know, one thing led to another. Uh, when I later went, uh, uh, you know, over to Newsday, I uh, continued uh, covering the, uh, uh, you know, the offensive, federal offensive against organized crime, uh, the rise of Gotti, John Gotti, and of course the subsequent demise of him and several other uh, of the crime family leaders in New York City. So it's been, you know, that. I guess it's what close to 40 years of uh, covering one way or another uh, the Cosa Nostra of the Mafia in New York City. And, uh, you know, it gives you some institutional history. 
and also, you know, an appreciation for where things were and where things have gone. Does it still exist today on, on some level? It does. Sure it does. Yeah, no, sure it does. It still exists, but it's uh, the old leaders who had some clout and ability are gone. Uh, some of the families are led by basically committees of street bosses, and they're from a high of you know maybe uh, you know, several hundred you know, soldiers and captains, and some of the families they're really reduced down to well under a hundred, and. Uh, you know they still have associates and they still have clout in certain communities and certain industries, but it's really diminished, and that's uh, no large uh, part, uh, no small part, because of the uh, uh, fe- you know, the federal offensive over the years against organized crime, which has been you know in some ways very effective. What was it about Frank Costello that inspired you to write a book about him? Well, he was a throwback to a time when organized crime was in its heyday. And he was a unique crime boss in the sense that uh, he wanted to be legitimate, at least he tried to be. Uh, He had this sort of uh, mantle of of, uh, boss or acting boss of uh, Lucky Luciano's family. But he he, he did try to be legitimate uh, in his business life. And he was also different from the kind of leaders we've seen today in that he courted politicians and legitimate people and became a, a, a sort of a, a liked figure in society in certain areas. Uh, he did have political clout, which a lot of people today in this, this life don't. And he was shrewd in that he did not, uh, he wasn't a violent man. Uh, he, uh, violence was the last thing he wanted to do, and he saw that there was much to, much to be said for trying to come to accommodation and uh, you know, conciliation and not go to war and not uh, resort to violence when you wanted something. And he also had a good business head. Uh, he exploited the opportunity in Prohibition, which was uh, a big moneymaker for the mob and really sort of uh, gave it sea legs, as it were, in the 20th century, with resources uh, to a lot of money, and uh, he was able to take it further into a, a significant gambling empire, and kind of uh, he, he had a head for business, and he had got into legitimate businesses, so he sort of diversified. Uh, he was a guy which you don't see very often today uh, on the street. In fact, very rarely. So let's go way back to Costello's early days, his, his family back in Italy. What was his childhood like, and how did he come to find himself in the United States? Yeah, well, basically in the late 19th century in Italy, the family uh, of, of Frank Costello, which is known as the Castiglia family, uh, 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 was not doing very well economically. It was really sort of a, a rural family and town of Leropoli in Italy, which is sort of in the area of the the boot of Italy, uh, between the toe and the heel, uh, next to the Ionian Sea. Uh, But they were hardscrabble farmers, and they weren't doing very well. Uh, The father came to America first, and after he worked as a laborer and saw that the prospects economically for the family weren't good in Italy, had the whole family come over, uh, including Frank and his mother and the, the sisters. And they settled in East Harlem, which at that time was known as Little Italy, 
Uh, and uh, they set up a shop on 108th Street, got a, an apartment with other people from the same sort of village area, and the parents opened a, uh, I guess, a grocery store, if you want to call it that, and sort of eked out a living. Uh, the father did work as a laborer, but the mother, uh, Maria, uh, had the head for business, and she ran the store. But Frank and his brother, Eddie, really were left to their own devices, and they sort of you know, got assimilated into street life. And in Little Italy at that time, street life was often controlled by you know, a group of uh, semi-official crime bosses. Uh, and uh, you know, Frank and his brother saw you know, that to, to make a living and to get by, you were going to have to, to hustle and get yourself allied with some street gangs, and that's what he did. And he did that as a young man, a young teenager, and certainly you know, got into some trouble, got arrested for a gun charge, uh, spent 11 months or so in uh, in jail, and when he got out, vowed that he was never going to hold a, a gun again, never get caught with it. Well, we know that that wasn't true necessarily. But then, he, you know, he, he saw that you know the way to, to at least staying out of trouble was to try to work in business, and he did work in a... Uh, a kind of uh, a strange novelty company, uh, which after it went bankrupt, and I think that was a purposeful bankrupt, I think it was a bust-out, as we call it, uh, Prohibition came along and offered him and others the opportunity to make untold sums of money feeding the, uh, the thirst of Americans for liquor, which was pretty substantial at that time. And he got into uh, bootlegging, and he did very well at it because he integrated the industry, meaning he had uh, the transportation, uh, the distribution, and the uh, you know, the smuggling routes all sort of organized around his operation. Now there were others, of course, who were also involved in that, but you know Frank Costello did this in a, in a way that uh, uh, was head and shoulders above some of the some of these combinations. He had his own little sort of seaplane force where the seaplanes could go out and meet the smuggling ships offshore. He had radio stations or clandestine radio stations that could broadcast signals to these ships. And he also had his own little intelligence network, which he uh, pulled together by bribing law enforcement people to give him information about you know, law enforcement offensives or when the Coast Guard was going out to intercept the ships. So he did it pretty well. And for a while... He and uh, another guy, William William Dwyer, uh, were the major bootleggers in New York City, and they made a lot of money. And this, of course, led them to, uh, uh, you know, pocket lots of cash, which would be able to fund things, criminal and non-criminal, later on in life. Uh, Frank did get indicted federally with Dwyer in a big bootlegging case, but because of problems with the government's case, uh, he was able to beat the rap, and he didn't get convicted. Although Dwyer did get convicted, he got sent away, but Frank survived. In the 1920s, during Prohibition, there were probably thousands of small-time bootleggers profiting off of illegal liquor, but what was it about Frank that was different from the typical two-bit rum runner? Was he charismatic? Was he smart? Uh, how, how did he separate himself? I think I think he was he, was, he had a, 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 a good street business sense. Uh, 
I think he allied with the right people, aligned with the right people. One of them was Arnold Rothstein, uh, who did lend him some money, and conversely, Frank lent Arnold some money. And uh, he made the right connections, and he saw the value of integrating his operation uh, on a number of levels, like we just talked about, you know, the, the seaplanes and the radio stations and, and whatnot. So he was pretty shrewd. And I think, and of course there was luck, because he didn't get convicted in that case. You know, if he had gotten convicted, it may have been a different story. He may have been sent away to prison, he may have had his assets stripped, but he didn't. And I think it was a combination of his shrewdness, intelligence, and connections that got him through the prohibition area in good stead. So those contacts you're referring to, they included Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel? Oh, yeah, Luc- Luciano, yeah, Lansky, right. There was a whole bunch of them uh, who went on to their own greatness, if you want to call it that. Uh, Rothstein, of course, was an early uh, provider of funding. Um, uh, Luciano, Lansky, and some of the other Italian uh, gangsters from that period uh, you know, Frank, the good thing about Frank in one sense was that you know, he wasn't clannish in that he liked to associate with the, the Jewish gangsters. In fact, his wife, uh, Loretta, uh, was herself Jewish, and he liked the Jewish culture. He liked the Jews in early New York of that period because he found them similar to the Italians. They were animated. They uh, lived in their own little enclaves, and uh, they were foreign, and so he could relate to that. Uh, so, you know, it was a, it was an interesting combination, and it was an interesting combination in a period of time where some major figures in American organized crime worked together and worked together with Frank, and he was able to exploit this uh, in a way that uh, many others didn't. He met Luciano first, right? Yeah, they're about to say it's about to say it's hard to, you know it's hard to say because we don't have any there's no written records they didn't keep diaries. Uh, they met about the same time, uh, Luciano and you know the Lansky, uh, and uh, this would have been you know early early 1920s, uh, perhaps a little earlier than that, and they sort of you know coalesced together. And they came together to, in various combinations at various times to work together. And they came to know each other. And, uh, and they more or less stayed out of trouble, although they did get in trouble but uh, at some point. Uh, so, you know, it, it was an interesting combination of some very interesting minds. I've read this before, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but was... Frank Costello, the the model for Vito Corleone in the Godfather films. So P- Puzo, Mary Puzo once said in an interview that the, the inspiration for uh, Don Corleone was his mother, his own mother, because she had that kind of personality. But uh, be that as it may, I think the real organized crime uh, inspiration was not only Costello. Uh, but I think there was some of Carlo Gambino and some of Joe Profacci in there. You know, Profacci was the olive oil king. As you remember, the olive oil business was part of Don Corleone's business. But, you know, the political hook uh, to that story in The Godfather it was something typified by what Costello did. And he courted politicians, and politicians courted him. Uh, 
So, you know, the extent that we had politics involved in The Godfather, that comes from Costello. I think the family connection, you could say Gambino, uh, the business family connection, Profaci, it's all sort of, you know, put together in this strange mix. So, uh, I, I think there's three people, Costello being one of them, who inspired the Godfather figure in Puzo's book. I'm wondering about the roles that each played in this relationship, especially between Costello and Luciano, because Costello worked for Luciano over the years, correct? Luciano was the boss of the Luciano crime family, and... That's true, That's true. yeah. Luciano was the one who uh, put together these various uh, coups, as it were. Uh, first, the, the assassination of uh, 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 Joe Mazzaria, and then later... In rapid fashion, the assassination of Salvatore Maranzano. It was uh, Luciano who pulled this off in conjunction with Lansky and others. Uh, with Costello as sort of an acolyte uh, to, to knock out these two old line bosses. And it was Luciano who created the structure of a more organized, organized crime where the five families, or five groupings, if you want to call it, uh, it came together in a more organized fashion and were governed for dispute settlements and other things by this, the commission structure, which we, you know, we may have in some form today, but it's probably not in existence. I think it probably died out by early 2000. But it was Luciano who put that together. And Costello was his good second, his good second in command. Uh, he needed Costello, Luciano needed somebody like Costello to be the sort of the negotiator, the sort of uh, uh, pacifier or uh, you know gentleman, if you wanted to. Luciano was a, generally not of that bent. This is something Costello, you know, was better at that time. So Costello was known for his political connections. He he was much more social, would you say? Yeah, well, yeah, but Luciano also was present uh, during that 1932 um, presidential nominating convention out in Chicago, uh, as well as Costello. Uh, 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 and so, you know, Luciano understood the value of that. And, uh, uh, you know, he had his own political hooks as well. Uh, so, but, but Costello was the one that brought this to, uh, I think, a higher level. Uh, he was able to court some of the uh, district leaders for Tammany, the old Tammany Hall organization, uh, who sought him out as well because of his money and I think his influence and the power of his reputation, uh, which is important. That's why Tammany, I think, gravitated to guys like this way back in the 30s and the 40s. So Luciano, Costello, I, I think they both had political components to them, uh, but it was uh, Costello in the end who really was more adept at that. Uh, and of course, you know what happened to Luciano when he got you know, convicted and ultimately sent away, got him out of the picture, to some extent. Absolutely. I want to ask you just briefly about the convention you just mentioned. Uh, 
what were their, their hopes? I mean, what, what did they want to accomplish at that convention? Well, this was, in, they wanted to, um, uh, you know, at that time, they wanted to have a role in the, uh, uh, you know, play a role in securing the uh, Democratic nomination, you know, the presidential nomination. Uh, and they were among the, you know, among the Tammany delegates who were were there at that time, and uh, they helped, uh, you know, pick the presidential candidate. And, uh, you, know, you know, it was, it was an interesting, you know, would you have that today? I rather doubt it. Um, so that would have been Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Did did they have some sort of a relationship to Roosevelt? To to your no. knowledge? Not not that we know. Of, no. Okay. I mean, look at that level that they were working at. They weren't working at anything at that uh, you know high level. Uh, uh, yeah, at that point. Um, and uh, you know, it's sort of an interesting interesting aspect of his story uh, because of. Uh, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't see that today. I think you know, these guys would be held at, at arm's length, you know, by politicians, or nor would they have any sort of tie-in with them. You know, the the, the worlds are just different. Back then, the worlds were much more, um, uh, I should say, fluid, and people. Yeah, you know, there's much more opportunity for the politician and the gangster to get together. Today, you know, people are going to be much more sophisticated about it. They're not going to. First of all, the social circles weren't aren't the same, and uh, you know, with newspapers being the way they are, uh, uh, investigative reporting, you know, any sort of connection would be, uh, you know, just a, a, a kiss of death for a politician. Uh, so you don't, you're not going to see that today. But back then, it was something interesting. I'm probably going to massacre the pronunciation of this, but you alluded to it already, so I'd like to flesh it out more. The Castella Maurice War? Yeah, the Castella Maurice War. Yeah, that was the one uh, back in, uh, well, the 30-31 period, 1930-31, which led to the demise in rapid fashion of Masseria and then Maranzano. And who were they, and what was the the point of the war? Well, Mar- Masseria was one of the old line bosses who, who you know, who led. Um, uh, he was a substantial power, certainly in the late 1920s in New York City in, in organized crime circles. He had a lot of people under him. Uh, he was a controlling boss, uh, but he was old school, and he was sort of uncouth, and he really didn't get on well. The younger guys like Luciano, uh, uh, Costello, and you know and some of the others. Um, so you know it, it was a matter of time, and it, it was probably it was probably greedy. Uh, I would think it was greedy, and uh, you know this was something that the, the younger guys they didn't want this anymore. They didn't want to be you know, playing second fiddle to somebody who kept them under 
uh, his thumb. And uh, uh, time, you know, their time was running out. The old boss, for the old boss's time was running out. And eventually, you know, Mazaria uh, was put upon by people like Maranzano who were able to sway uh, Luciano and Costello and their crowd uh, uh, over to his side against Mazaria. And that ultimately led to Mazaria's assassination in April of 1931, in the famous Comey Island shooting. Uh, where what were the circumstances was, of that murder? Well, that was, you know, there went, you remember the circumstance? Well, the circumstance was that it was a Coney Island fish restaurant called uh, Nuova, Nuova Villa Tamora, uh, run by a, a, a guy by the name of Gerardo Scarpato. And he had a place off of Surf Avenue in Coney Island, a popular place, and still is. And Mazaria went there with Luciano for lunch, and they stayed for a while. And Luciano, the story goes, suggested a card game, and after they started playing, Luciano excused himself to go to the bathroom. And lo and behold, three or four guys come into the uh, restaurant and started shooting at Mazaria. And in short order, he was you know, shot probably about five, six times and killed. And uh, Luciano came out, you know, at the bathroom and uh, when the police came, you know, he couldn't couldn't understand why this happened to to Joe. Uh, of course it was all a fiction. And um uh you know, after that, uh, you know, Maranzano, you know, became emboldened because he wanted to be the top boss. And, you know, for a while it worked but not very long. Uh, he, he called the meeting of gangsters all over the place, you know, in the Bronx, particularly, uh, to get their allegiance and to get money. Uh, but it, 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 it didn't work because he, it seems that Maranzano became uh, paranoid and he wanted to kill many of the old Mazaria allies, who, you know, included Luciano and Costello, Capone and Genovese and some of the others. And, uh, uh, you know, Costello didn't like Maranzano, and who thought he was a, what he called a greaseball. Uh, and, uh, and he also believed he had the Julius Caesar complex. So, uh, Costello, Luciano, and the others thought there was enough justification, uh, to kill Maranzano since he was coming after them. And it was with Lansky and some of the other Jewish gangsters that uh, Maranzano was killed in September of 1931, mere, what, four months, five months after uh, Mazzaria had been killed. Once that happened, um, uh, Luciano uh, you know, called everybody together and they created this, what was considered the modern structure of organized crime around the commission model, where we had this... Uh, a commission of organized crime formed to govern uh, organized crime in a way that uh, everybody kept their territories, and if there were any disputes, the commission would solve them. The commission would set up rules, uh, what to do, what not to do, and, and about who could be you know, made as, as a member. So it, it, it was from that point on, 1931, that we saw this structure uh, pretty much uh, put in place by uh, Luciano uh, to govern organized crime. And that, that's what lasted for many years, for decades. I did an episode a few months ago with author Ellen Polson, 
who wrote a book about Luciano's prostitution trials. Mm-hmm. Luciano, as, as most of us, I, I suppose, know, was deported. Could, could you explain what happened after he left the power void and, and how it was filled? Well, after Luciano got convicted in the prostitution case, and there were some who, who maintain to this day that uh, if they had done things under our current rule of law, he would, may not have been convicted. In any case, he was convicted and sentenced, I think, to 30 to 50 years in jail. So he was off the street. Uh, Costello was the de facto boss, uh, although you know Vito Genovese was, in a sense, a rival. But things, you know, never are uh, what they what, what they appear to be. And uh, Luciano was in prison, and it was during World War II that this interesting set of circumstances developed where Luciano was courted to help in the war effort. By that I mean uh, naval intelligence people uh, made an entree with him through other gangsters, including Costello, to help out on the war effort in terms of the sabotage on the docks and the uh, getting intelligence from the fishing fleets. And it was because of that, ultimately, uh, you can argue from now to whenever about how much help Luciano gave. But be that as it may, uh, his sentence um, wasn't commuted uh, as such, but uh, because he tried to get a sentence reduction and and that didn't the sentencing judge wouldn't do that but he the judge said 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 that look i'm not going to reduce your sentence but maybe at some point uh, the governor uh, or the, uh, might uh, you know grant you clemency so that you could you know be free from prison and the deal was that uh Dewey who ironically convicted Luciano gave uh, uh, Luciano clemency with a provision that he leave the country and had to be deported, which is what happened. So Costello takes over and and then begins the feud, the almost lifelong feud between Costello and Vito Genovese, right? Yeah, I mean, Genovese was a power in his own right, but Genovese had to leave the country as well during the war, World War II, because of uh, he had a murder rap in Brooklyn he was ducking, so he had to leave the country. But after the war, he came back, and although he was supposed to stay in trial, the witnesses either died or disappeared. So Costello and, and, uh, and Vito Genovese are in this sort of uneasy alliance uh, at the top of the, the heap in, in the crime family. And there began what I think were months of years of intrigue, uh, and jockeying between the two of them. Uh, to, uh, I don't think Costello necessarily had the heart to try to be the boss as you know, Genovese. I think Genovese enjoyed and wanted more of the naked power that he had as a boss. So Costello was kind of like a reluctant prince, as it were, at the top of the heap. And he had this constant struggle with Genovese. Uh, and in that world, you know, that was a really rough time, uh, the late 40s, and early 50s in organized crime. There were a lot of you know, homicides. 
What, what kind of a man was Genovese? How was his personality different from Costello's? I mean, did, did they have different... More, more volatile, it seems. Uh, uh, he didn't have the business sense that uh, Costello had. Uh, so, you know, their personalities were different. Uh, he probably wasn't as intelligent uh, in, in a, you know, in one sense. I mean, he had the street smarts, I think, to survive as long as he did. Uh, but there were different personalities. There really were. Costello was more of a nightlife guy. Uh, he was well-known in the press. Genovese was uh, not of that ilk. I'd like to move to a man nicknamed Kid Twist, if I could. Or Abe Rellis. Or, or Rellies, as they call him. Yeah. Yeah. Who who was he exactly, and what was his bone with Frank Costello? Well, you know, there's been some debate about that. Uh, Rellies or Rellis uh, was um, um, uh, aligned with the old Murder, Inc. crew, and that was the uh, largely Jewish gangster clique out out of Brooklyn, which in the 1930s and 40s was very active uh, in crime, and and they, they, they their base of operation was a was a Midnight Rosie's, which was an old candy store uh, in Brooklyn, uh, and they were you know they were killers, uh, they were killers, and they were sometimes contract killers, but they they they're reputed to have killed a great many people. And Relis was, you know, part of that clique. And uh, at some point, uh, you know, Relis gets arrested and becomes a a witness against uh, 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 a number of them. And he testifies on a number of occasions. And uh, of course, as as the famous story is that in, uh, uh, in the 1940s, Relis was being kept in a the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island and safeguarded by police as a witness getting ready to testify when he either fell or was pushed out of his room climbing down a rope of bed sheets and uh, was killed. And the story goes that uh, you know, some people said that it was Costello uh, who, uh, you know, who, who, who paid off the police to uh, you know, get access to uh, uh, Relis and uh, uh, and you know kill and have him killed, but so we but we don't really know, you know. There's an official grand jury report that uh, 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 came out which which didn't say anything about that, uh, but uh, that that was the story that was uh, um, you know uh, given some currency, but I you know frankly I don't think it was ever proved. That was the connection. Hmm. So Costello, among other things, was a part of the infamous 1947 Mafia Summit in Havana, Cuba, right? Yeah, he was listed as one of the participants in the uh, 1947, some say it was December 1946, uh, conference in Havana. Luciano made his way back to the Western Hemisphere, and all of his old buddies, Lansky and others, uh, met him in Havana. And they had a conclave, which they talked over a number of things, uh, including you know control of the rackets, and also it seems to some extent the uh, 
problems that uh, Bugsy Siegel was having or giving them with the creation of the uh, the, the Flamingo Hotel in uh, Las Vegas, uh, uh, for which uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel didn't fare too well after that. Uh, he was killed. Uh, he was believed to be skimming or causing problems and mismanaging the place, so they had him taken away. Killed. Even though Costello was the head of Luciano's organization, Luciano was still trying his best to keep. Luciano, yeah, yeah Luciano had a, a enormous retained enormous clout, and from what I understand, he was com, you know com, communicating with people here by you know, telephone and emissaries. So he had great sway over the crime situation in New York City, even though he had been deported. So he had power, and he was exercising it through people like Costello. And to some extent, Genovese. Did Costello remain friends with Meyer Lansky over the years? Uh, Over the years, yeah. Over the years, yeah. Uh, They did remain friends. Um, I have a picture in the book, in the top hoodlum, of Costello uh, dining at the famous uh, uh, restaurant uh, in... uh, run by Diamond Jim Brocato in uh, in New Orleans. And then at the table, along with Costello and his wife and others, there seems to be, uh, I, I think I, I picked out uh, Meyer Lansky uh, among the group. And, uh, uh, yeah, they remain, they remain friends over the years, uh, Costello and Lansky. So, you know, it was, it was an enduring friendship. Besides reading your book, I also went to YouTube to type Costello's name in just to see what came up. And and what comes up at the top is his testimony in front of the U.S. Senate. And I wanted to ask you about that, why he was called for that, and what the conflict was between the government and the mob in the early 1950s. This was the early 50s, correct? Yeah, well, you know, in the early 1950s, you know, the Keith Alver Committee was formed to go after... Uh, the question of interstate influence on organ, of organized crime, and they set up a series of hearings across the country, uh, in New York, of course, and other places, and uh, they were going to call and did call a lot of the, uh, the mob figures of the period, Costello being one of them, and Costello, you know, debated whether he should testify, and uh, in the end, figured that he should. Uh, because, you know, he might be able to clear his name and show, you know, what a good, upstanding citizen he was. And uh, he testified, and, you know, it proved to be a disaster for him. Uh, he considered himself to be nothing more than a businessman and a gambler, but he um, uh, uh, he did not acquit himself well in his testimony. The famous part of this testimony was that, you know, his lawyer didn't want his picture shown on TV, uh, because it would be distracting and uh, stressful. So the TV cameras agreed to photograph just Costello's hands, although the newsreel camera showed everything. Uh, but the hands were so telling for Costello because he fidgeted, he wrung his hands, played with a handkerchief, and you know, rubbed his hands together, tapped them on the table. And, and that was an, like, although his words were what they were, you could hear them. His hands were telling so much of a story, so much stress. 
that was shown. And he, he, uh, with the hands and with his voice and with his answers, which were evasive or uh, somewhat arrogant in some ways and uh, deceitful, uh, he did not acquit himself well. And a lot of people who watched it came away with the impression that this guy, you know, he, he probably, it's probably true that he was a crime boss. So if he wanted to foster the image that he was not, he didn't do himself any service by testifying the way he did. And that's what happened. And ultimately, because of his combative nature with some of the questioning by the committee, the senators, he was cited uh, and indicted for perjury, not perjury, for uh, uh, contempt of Congress, and got convicted. Um, so he got you know some time in, in jail, in prison. Uh, it was a disaster for him. And the hearings themselves put Costello at a time when TV was in the infancy. This was its big story. This was his first big national story. People were riveted by it. And they, they looked at, they saw Costello as the emblem of organized crime, sort of poster boy for organized crime in this country. And this was the first time it was sort of broadcast in that wide nature. It was the first really compelling, uh, uh, one of the first compelling uh, live news events for the country. And it happened to deal with organized crime. And he became the face of it, at least for this period. And there were hundreds that were called to testify, right? Uh, but the Oh, there were others, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, um, uh, Frank Erickson, uh, 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 Tommy Lucchese, uh, Joe Profacci. There were others. And in other cities. There were other figures in other cities. And this is the, the key for our hearings was a traveling roadshow, Senate roadshow. They went to major cities around the country, Miami, you know, Las Vegas, uh, uh, I'm assuming L.A. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me, but they went all over the place. And they called a lot of gangsters, and they called a lot of cops, too, and a lot of government officials. So it really was a sort of seminal period uh, in American history, certainly American history of organized crime. Most of them pleaded the fifth, I, I believe, but not him. A number of them did. Some of them didn't. You'd be surprised. Um, uh, Lucchese, I think, answered some questions. Profaci, I think, answered some questions. Others didn't. You're right. Uh, but surprisingly, a number of them did testify to some extent. I was just surprised. How long was it after his testimony that he, he found himself in jail? Oh, about a year. And what did he go to jail for? It was uh, contempt of Congress. And how how long did he serve? I think it was an 18-month sentence, ultimately. Did he come out a changed man at all in, in the way that he conducted business? I wouldn't say he came out changed physically, probably. He didn't like it being in jail. He, uh, um, you know, I think he lost weight and got maybe some sick sickness issues, but he didn't come out a changed man. Uh, by the time he got out, he still had his uh, businesses, and he, uh, um, uh, you know, was still involved in the mob life, as it were. And he was evading his taxes, as we find out. Tax evasion. <laughs> uh, pretty crazy that these these guys didn't learn from Al Capone. Eh? Yeah, he was pretty, he was pretty uh, you know, uh, he claimed to the FBI, look, I don't deal, I, I deal in cash, I don't have bank accounts, I don't have a checking account, 
but ultimately his wife, uh, Loretta, uh, wrote a check, a $5 check, as it turns out, to a, a funeral florist, which gave the IRS a tip about large cash transactions to buy a mausoleum in uh, St. Michael's Cemetery. And that led to a net worth analysis, which ultimately showed that Frank was making, was spending more money than he he and his wife took in for for income, reported income. So that created a problem. Once you get to that, you know, uh, income tax evasion mode, you know, they can sort of make a compelling case that you were hiding income uh, that you weren't reporting. And, you know, that got him another couple of years in prison. Uh, and that changed him physically as well, I think. He, uh, you know, he got further heart problems. But he still kept on uh, in his, uh, uh, you know, organized crime associations. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, 
the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So even after he gets out of prison, he's, he's still feuding with Genovese, and, and things begin to escalate between the two, right? Yeah, until, yeah, and that's what happened until... You know, in 1957, there was an attempt on his life as he was going into his uh, apartment building. And, uh, you know, he was only grazed in the head, luckily. But I think that that showed him the light. And he decided at that point, uh, uh, supposedly with an agreement with Genovese to get out of the leadership and sort of retire, as it were. Uh, You know, he had his betting, uh, gambling businesses, he had his oil leases, uh, he had a few businesses here and there, so he retired. He was actually doing quite well uh, when he retired. Did that assassination attempt happen in, in broad daylight? No, it was a night. After a night of dining out. So he was headed home? Yeah, he was, he was entering his building, uh, Central Park West. Somebody came up behind him, and the words were, this is for you, Frank, uh, something to that effect. And he turned, and that may have saved his life, and the bullet just grazed him. How do, how do we know about this later on? Did, did well, someone... what happened was, uh, well, he, uh, he, he talked to police. Uh, he, there was also a doorman there, uh, and there was also a friend of Frank who came in and uh, rushed in who just dropped him off uh, with the taxi and rushed back in to, you know, to see to see what happened and heard what happened. This is how we know. But ultimately, the suspicion was that uh, Vinnie the Chin Giganti was the shooter. And Giganti did disappear for a couple of weeks, but then got arrested, brought to trial for the attempted murder, but uh, even Frank couldn't identify him as the shooter, so uh, Vinnie got off. And they supposedly became friends after that believe it or not. <laughs> it's interesting after this decades-long feud. Yeah, yeah. And Costello's, yeah, Costello supposedly had him over for dinner one night. <laughs> so you, you, I can't explain it. <laughs> and it's also interesting that after Genovese tries to murder him, he, he later forms an alliance with him. Is, is that, that correct? In, in substance, I mean... Um, well, Frank retires in 57. Vinny the Chin didn't really get ascendant to his own power until much later. So Frank was sort of out of the picture, uh, Frank Costello. And uh, uh, you know, the Chin had a career that was in organized crime that was, you know, growing in terms of his influence. But he's, you know, remembered for being the reputed shooter. So that gave him some a lot of street cred. And not long after that, uh, Genovese got convicted of uh, drug trafficking and sent away. So he took him off the street. What eventually happened to the Chin? Well, he became uh, uh, boss of the family, and certainly through the 1990s into the, uh, uh, well, I would say more towards post-2000. 
and was famous for doing that crazy routine where he'd walk around the street in a bathrobe trying to impress people that he was either uh, senile or mentally ill and didn't really uh, uh, it was all a ruse and he admitted it later on in court that it was uh, you know, he was doing it to throw people off and he ultimately died in I think it was 2000 um, well it wasn't long sometime after 2010 I think uh, Vinny died and uh and he died in prison. He died in prison because of uh, uh, you know, he got convicted on a number of levels for a number of crimes, including lying, uh, you know, uh, pulling the charade of mental illness. But he had other crimes that he was convicted for as well. Have you ever sat down with any of these guys as part of your your reporting and, and interviewed them? I've talked to some of these people, but it's all been like on a confidential nature, um, so I can't say who. But um, uh, well, Frank was—you know—Frank died in '73, so he was uh, died well before my time. And Vinnie the Chin didn't talk to anybody. And part of what Frank was able to retire on—and and correct me if I'm wrong—but he made a, a decent income from slot machines in Louisiana, right? He even had a deal with Huey Long. That's well. That's the, the story was that, uh, and Frank tells the story that Huey Long you know, sort of enticed him to come into Louisiana uh, to set up the slot machine operations, uh, and he did have an operation, and he had it with his uh, friend uh, Phil Castell and I think uh, Frank's brother-in-law, one of his brother-in-laws, and they did make a go of it, and they they, they made. What uh, so for, for them was a significant amount of money. Frank also set up a uh, uh, a uh, you know a nightclub uh, in Louisiana, uh, which became popular. And uh, uh, you know, look, I think slot machines after a while were illegal in New Orleans, uh, but. There was illegal, and then there was like the quasi-legal nature of the way things were going on. You know, they were sort of tolerated. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's so much history mashed up into this that, uh, uh, you know, any any string you pull on this, uh, in terms of Frank Costello's history and his connections, you know, will take you down another path, uh, which which could be another, you know, books in their own right. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, it, it, that's what makes him an interesting character, because he had his hand in so many pies, and was so significant uh, to the organized crime structure uh, of the day. And uh, you know, this is the day when organized crime had its heyday. Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, the police. I wouldn't say they didn't go after it, but it wasn't as you know, they weren't as effective. The feds didn't have the racketeering statutes. The FBI had sort of this on again, off again approach to, uh, to going after organized crime. So you know, uh, uh, you know, the time was ripe for somebody like this to have they become a man of influence, but. Uh, Gradually, things started to change in the 1970s when Frank really was retired uh, and really out of the picture. 
But uh, while he was in his heyday, he was uh, sort of a guy who was, uh, uh, you know, one of a kind. Uh, it's one of a kind because he survived and died in his own bed, uh, whereas a lot of his friends, including Albert Anastasia, didn't. Uh, or they were in prison, uh, like his rival Vito Genovese. It's in the, the title of your book, his nickname, Prime Minister of the Mafia. Who who gave him that, and, and what exactly did it mean? It was a press-generated you know, it was, it was press thing. Uh, the, the press at the time gave him that. Prime Minister, you know, it was kind of like a almost an honorific. It was like a, he was like a a conciliator, negotiator uh, within the mob structure. So he, you know, acted like in a ministerial capacity. Um, and there was nobody else like that. Later on, it would be. You know, you could possibly look at Carlo Gambino and say that, but uh, uh, Costello was a guy who not only you know was ministerial, but he also you know had political connections. So you know, to the extent that a ministerial position is political, well, he had those connections. So you mentioned in passing Albert Anastasia, but we really haven't discussed him up up to this point. Would you? Sure. Anastasia, Albert Anastasia was, uh, 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 he was given the nickname, I guess, the Mad Hatter. He, uh, he, you know, was a pretty brutal guy, and he had his power on the docks, as did many of the gang, the mob leaders of that period in the 1940s. Uh, he... You know, it was connected to a, 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 a. He was out of Brooklyn, and of course, you know, you have your. That was the docks, right? The period of. That's where the docks were ascended. Uh, you had uh, uh, the piers in Brooklyn, and the Brooklyn waterfront was a uh, a bailiwick of organized crime. And Anastasia had his power base there, and he became um, uh, a significant power in organized crime. But he was not in many ways well-liked. Um, uh, he was seen as brutal. He, there was also stories that he supposedly uh, you know, had to pay his way uh, into mob uh, leadership. Uh, but um, uh, he had substantial power, but he, he alienated enough people that uh, uh, he was the subject of an assassination attempt in, uh, oh, in the mid-50s. And I can get to, you know, I can pull out the date. But he was sitting in a barber's chair in Manhattan and uh, getting a shave and a haircut. I, I think it was more, a lot more than two bits um, in terms of the price. But he was there, his face swaddled in, in a towel. And gunmen came up to him. And they just, you know, unloaded on him, and uh, they shot him dead. But he was a good friend of Frank's, and when Frank saw this, uh, you know, saw that Anastasia was killed, um, he was devastated. You know, that meant that he was next, 
and it was believed that uh, uh, you know nobody was ever really caught for this or prosecuted. Uh, and it certainly was a sensational murder, but uh, you know, the feeling was that uh, uh, there was a lot of contempt for Anastasia, so any one of a number of plotters uh, could have been involved. Uh, and he was buried without any opulent mob funeral, that's for sure. Just a few people around his burial at Greenwood Cemetery, and we're talking, uh, you know, October 1957 when this happened, and it was in the Park Sheraton Hotel. And a sensational murder, but a very low-key funeral for Anastasia. And uh, yeah, why did Anastasia get killed? Uh, suspected, you know, perhaps for orchestrating the murder of the previous family boss who disappeared. So there was a lot of people who had problems with Anastasia. But but his name is you know you talk about mob history and famous mob hits. The murder of Albert Anastasia was uh, uh, you know one of the first is one of the first things that'll come to mind. Sure, I have to say I'm so intrigued about the private meetings had between Costello and J. Edgar Hoover. Supposedly, yeah. The story is that you know he met him on the street. Uh, exchange some racing tips, uh, nothing more than that. I think people have circulated stories that there may have been more that the mob had on Hoover. Uh, I didn't get too far into that in the book because that's that's worthy of another book. That's one of these you know things that you could fork over for years and you know come up with other stories. But there was some connection. There was some connection. Uh, uh, it's amusing, <laughs> at the very least. Well, one of the themes throughout Costello's life you allude to in, in the book was this need for recognition. Yeah, respectability. To be reputable. Yeah, right? respectability. I mean, Costello, and I and I say this, I'm not the first to say this, but Costello was kind of the great Gatsby character of the mob. Uh, you know, like great uh, Jay Gatsby wanted in the book, uh, the great Gatsby, who wanted respectability, but he wanted it because he was pursuing his daisy, the love of his life. Costello was res- pursuing respectability for respectability. Uh, he, and in some sense, those of you who are familiar with uh, the great Gatsby, uh, Costello lived in the part of the fictional Long Island where Gatsby couldn't get to. He aspired to it, but he couldn't get there. Uh, Costello lived in Sands Point. He had a a nice home in Sands Point. Gatsby lived across the bay in the socially inferior sort of West Egg section. Uh, So it's it's an interesting little uh, parallel in the the book Top Hoodlum. I talk about uh, the great Gatsby uh, similes here uh, and how, in some sense, you know, Costello was the uh, the Gatsby-esque character for his period. And the mob, you know, and certainly others. And then the bootlegging connection, you know, was sort of similarities there. Do you think Costello was aware at all of the similarities between he and, and Jay Gatsby? Mm, you know, it's conceivable that somebody brought it up that his lawyer, uh, George Wolf, who was, uh, uh, got very close to him, may have alluded to this. Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) 
Well, well, this has been great. So, so for people who would like to learn more about you, the work you've done, not just this book, but your others as well, where can we direct them? Yes, I, mean, I have a website. It's uh, Tony DiStefano. Uh, that's Tony DiStefano, all one word. dot com. Uh, I'm on Facebook uh, under Tony DiStefano, and uh, uh, you know my website certainly has all the books listed. And uh, if you look uh, under my name, you'll you'll see information about all the books. Uh, there is another Anthony DiStefano, but he writes books that are more religious bent. I have the distinction of having a middle initial to distinguish us. Mine is Anthony M. DiStefano. So, you know, if people get confused when they call call up my name and they come up with uh, books about uh, saints and gods and, uh, and religious topics and when they're looking for mob stories, that's not the, that's not the same Anthony DiStefano, you know, who's, who's, who's uh, quite a noted author in his own right. Well, we are two separate people, and our genres are, are much different. But but you are two separate people. <laughs> the very opposite ends, good and evil. Yeah, really. <laughs> Not you personally, of course, but just your subject matter. No, no, no I, I got the point. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, I mean, the Costello book was fun to do. A lot of work, but fun to do, because, uh, you know, trying to put together top hoodlum, I had to encompass, you know, 60 years of history, and about a subject where many people who knew him aren't alive. Some are, but many aren't. And I, I had to, you know, really uh, dig hard and deep. But I had fun doing it, and I had the luck of me uh, talking to some of his first cousins twice removed who had some information and photographs, which were, proved to be helpful. So it was good to do. It was, it was fun to do. Yeah, I was going to say that, that a biography like this has to be really difficult. I mean, it's not like these guys were keeping personal journals in, in hopes to to write a memoir. <laughs> so, so much, it seems, is still unknown. So, patching together a coherent narrative takes a lot of work. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, the writer, Peter Moss, tried to do a bi- biography of was going to do a biography with Costello about his life. Uh, and they worked out a deal. They were going to do it. And they were going to have extensive interviews at the Sands Point, Costello's estate. And within a week, Costello has a heart attack, and then he's dead. And um, I did get into the uh, records of Peter Moss uh, that are kept at Columbia University. And the only thing I found of use well, it's interest, actually, was a sort of five-page, three or, three or four or five-page uh, pitch letter, a synopsis he had of what he wanted to do with the book with Costello and how he felt about Costello. And he admired Costello. But Peter Moss never got to do that book. So, you know, it was up to me, I guess, to do what Moss couldn't. Moss himself died in 2001. So, you know, I had that in the back of my mind when I'm putting this together, uh, that, uh, you know, we're taking this where uh, a good writer couldn't go. Oh, that's great. For circumstances beyond his control. Absolutely. Well, what a good note to, to end this on. Thanks so much for your, your time today. I couldn't, and I appreciate the opportunity.
Again, I've been talking to Anthony Stefano, author of Top Hoodlum, Frank Costello, Prime Minister of the Mafia. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.